If you're a parent, teacher, or school leader, and you're sick and tired of the frustration, anger, and unfair treatment of children at high risk in our public schools, then perhaps it's time for all of us to do something about it. In this podcast, Dr. Amitra Berry brings you tips, tools, strategies, and tactics to build successful solutions while touching, moving, and inspiring all of us to transform our schools so that every child thrives. Here's your host, Dr. Berry. Welcome back, Equity Warriors. Thanks for joining me. You know, together, we are out to change the conversation about equity in education. We're about changing the trajectories of the lives of marginalized and oppressed children, not just in the United States, but around the globe. I cannot do this alone. And I know you're sharing this message. Thank you so much for doing that. But I have a special ask for you today. If you know of a conference or organization or event that needs to hear this message, that needs to understand why this is so important at this time in our history with what's going on in our schools, in our world, get them connected. I've put a special email down in the notes for this episode. It's drb at almitraberry.com. Have them listen to an episode. Give them that email address. Let's get this message out to larger audience. You and I together, we as a community, we can affect change. Let's do this. In North Carolina, a principal suspended a high school girl for 10 days and banned her from attending graduation and any senior activities. What did she do? She wore a slightly off-shoulder top to school. There was an assistant principal in Texas who drew on a black boy's head in permanent marker, permanent marker, to cover up a shaved design in his hair. Also in Texas, a transgender girl was told not to return to school until she followed the school's dress code guidelines for boys. Can't make this stuff up, folks. Hey there, Equity Warriors. Glad we are here together again today. I hope you enjoyed the last episode on the racist origins of policing in our public schools. I want to continue on that theme today, focusing today on dress codes and what they say to and about our black and brown children. So maybe there's someone else like me who remembers being in junior high school and sneaking clothes to school that you couldn't wear out of the house because mom's dress code was stricter than the school's. Maybe trading clothes. This is a girl thing. Trading clothes. Well, I don't know. Trading clothes with your girlfriends or guys trading clothes with your guy friends. Oh my gosh. Wearing lipstick. I remember being busted for wearing lipstick and a little bit of blush when I was in the 10th grade. And yes, okay, things were different then. But today, dress codes are disproportionately targeting girls, black girls, and black boys, and LGBTQIA students. There's a report that came out from the Government Accountability Office, the GAO, where researchers analyzed the dress codes from 236 public school districts. Now, there are more than 13,000 districts, so the sample size is a little less than 2% of districts nationwide, but that's a solid sample, 236 public school districts. And what they found was that school dress codes are not equitable and that Districts that enforce them strictly also predominantly enroll students of color. 
So kind of like our first episode with SROs disproportionately in schools of color, we have strict dress code enforcement in schools that are predominantly schools of color. Now, female students in that report consistently reported that dress codes at their schools sexualize them and that treating common U.S. clothing options, spaghetti straps, tank tops, treating those things as though they're revealing or alluring outfits that distract male students from learning. I'm sorry, boys, focus on your studies, not the girls. Why are the girls being punished? Now, 93% of school districts have dress codes. Let me try and stay on topic today. Most of which are designed, they say, to promote safety and security. So, no hats, no scarves. They say it's about seeing or identifying students. Facial recognition in schools much? How much of a police state are our schools becoming? You can't wear a scarf because I need to know who you are. That doesn't sound like school to me. Sounds a lot more like prison. Now, in my classroom, I did tell the young men they had to remove their hats when they walked into the classroom. That was about respect. It was about decorum. I explained what that was about. Double head cover, a little bit of my military background coming in there. And my boys were okay with that. They took their hats off as they came in the room. They put them back on when they went out. Used to be a pretty standard thing. When men walked into a building, they removed their hats. Not, you can't wear a hat at school at all. But 90%. 90% of all dress code policies are aimed at girls' clothing, halters, strapless tops, shorts, skirts, yoga pants, things that are skin tight. There are specific words that are found in dress codes, such as cleavage, breast, nipples. This really sounds like a man problem to me, over-sexualizing our young girls. Only 69% of policies are aimed at boys. Two things that they find most common, muscle tees and sagging pants. Now, yeah, in my classroom... Sagging pants, again, about respect and decorum, about how you would show up for work. And yes, I would talk to my young ladies about that if they were dressed inappropriately as well, what I deemed inappropriate. Showing up for work, and I did have this big giant spool of pink yarn that I kept for my boys to hold their pants up while they were in the room. And we did talk. I talked to my boys about what the sagging pants came from, the origins of that. Okay, but again, we got 90% of policy aimed at girls, 69% aimed at boys, and more than 80% of districts banned head coverings, hats, hoodies, bandanas, and scarves, but only a third of those dress codes specify that they allow religious exemptions, and just a few that allow cultural or medical exemptions. Now, when I read that, it reminded me of a student I had. She was a sixth grader, female student who was sixth grade. She was a Muslim. Her father was an imam. They were a very devout family, and she was new to the United States. And so she wore a hijab, the head covering. I remember a few occasions where I had to physically advocate for her when there was a, a teacher when we went to go visit seventh grade school, and a teacher tried to remove her head covering because she said, we don't allow head covers at this school. And I dove over her table and grabbed the woman's arm to keep her from touching this student's head and removing it for making arrangements when we did head lice checks so that she didn't have to take off her head cover in the presence of boys, things like that. We have to consider that. 59% of dress codes have rules about students' hair, their hairstyles, their head coverings. Again, disproportionately impacting Black students because these rules, these policies, these dress codes are written from a very white Eurocentric American, white Euro-American perspective, right? So my hair's in locks, our braids, the way our young men will cut their natural hair. That is not part of their culture. So students' hair. of districts with dress codes ban hair wraps. 
Some specifically ban do-rags. Now, personally, frankly, I don't think you should wear a do-rag or a bonnet to school. To me, that's about showing up for work. One district, one district actually prohibited hair with, I kid you not, this is a quote, excessive curls. You can't have hair with excessive curls. It's the way God created my hair. It's the way it grows out of my head. Another one stated that hair may be no deeper than two inches when measured from the scalp. So no big afros, folks. And you'll need to put some carcinogenic chemicals on your hair in order to relax those curls. In case you haven't heard of it, there's this thing called the CROWN Act. And that the CROWN is an acronym which stands for Creating a Respectful and Open World for Natural Hair. It's a law in many states now that prohibits race-based hair discrimination, denying employment or educational opportunities because of one's hair texture or a protective head style like our braids, dreadlocks, locks, twists, bantu knots. But you have to ask yourself, why is it that we have to have a law that allows Black people to wear their hair the way it grows out of their heads. That's like having to have a law that allows our skin to be the shade that it is, or our eyes to be the color that they are. You're trying to, you're policing genetics, policing genetics. But let's talk about how they police and enforce dress codes for a second here. So 60% of dress codes in this study, they found staff members had to measure students' body and their clothing to check adherence. And some of that might involve touching students. Don't stick a ruler into the top of my head or my children or adults, but son's or grandson's head to see if it was more than two inches. Roughly 93% of dress codes had rules with subjective language. So decisions about whether or not something was compliant was open to the staff member, educators, personal interpretation. And then we also find that when kids are removed from class or from school because of a dress code violation, that usually only happens in schools where the enrollment is predominantly students of color where students where there are large numbers of economically disadvantaged students are low-wealth schools, they're more likely to enforce strict dress codes as well. And this is really particularly hard on families of low wealth because they have to buy specific clothing. They have to buy uniforms, or they can allow their children to have hair, only have hair that's approved by school. And there's a financial cost to that as well. There's a higher rate of exclusionary discipline, and, and that means that we're removing students from classrooms or removing students from school for dress codes in these schools with, with strict enforcement. So in-school suspension, out-of-school suspension, taking them out of learning because you don't like the way that they're dressed, taking them out of learning because their hair is too curly, taking them out of learning because their culture or their religion requires their head to be covered. So this means that our students of color, our students of low wealth, and most specifically our black girls are facing consequences for violating dress codes that cause them to miss class time. The more class time they miss, the more likely it is that they will fall behind in school and drop out or not graduate. We look across this country, the narrative is females as sexual objects and potential victims of harassment, assault, and rape because of their clothing choices, not because of the behaviors and actions of their perpetrators. When our girls of color get violated, dress code violated, coded more often, 
it, it suggests that teachers, administrators, school staff see their clothing as too revealing, but the female clothing on our white students is acceptable. There's this over-sexualization of females of color, and that's a problem. That's a problem. Kimberly Crenshaw called this, this is part of an intersectionality, understanding how racism and sexism interact. And that intersectionality, this experience is much greater than simply racism or simply sexism, because you've taken two things and compounded the impact where we have a system of structural oppression that is particularly intense for women of color. We have situations in looking at dress code through interpretive lens, the the lens of whoever the, the educator is that's deciding whether or not something is too revealing. And you can have two girls of the same age in the same dress, but because one is a little more physically mature, she's perceived as being sexualized and risque because of her body type. So what do we do? When we look at your dress codes in your schools, it's suggested that you eliminate gender-specific language. So not a tube top or spaghetti straps, but why not simply state that clothing must cover the chest, torso, and lower extremities? Instead of saying hats, head scarves, or, or do-rags, why not say hats and other headwear has to allow the face to be visible and not interfere with the line of sight to any student or staff? Hoodies must allow the student's face and ears to be visible to the staff. Again, I think we got facial recognition software in the hallways now, I suppose. Students are losing instructional time for afros and cleavage. That has to change. Think about this. Pull them out of class or you grab them in the hall five minutes out of class for compliance check. Then you spend another 20 minutes trying to find through the donation bin or the clothing bin or the school's clothes closet, trying to find them something appropriate to wear. And if you can't do that, you send them home. So maybe that's an hour-long trip to go home, change clothes, come back if they can, or you suspended them or put them in in-school suspension, a day of class. So even worse than losing out on that instructional time, our kids are getting a message, whether it's explicit or implicit, that there's something wrong with their clothing or there's something wrong with their bodies. Adults, we need to be conscious and really, really examine our own beliefs about children and young adults and how our beliefs influence our practices. Which students are we calling out? Which students are we seeing as criminal? Who is distracting? And what infractions are you choosing to ignore, to not see? When our schools don't ask these questions, our female and male students of color will continue to be sexualized and criminalized at the expense of their education. For years, probably 20 years now, I've been saying it is better to educate than to incarcerate. In this case, it's better to educate than over-sexualize. Teach students about professional dress. Teach them. Don't just expect them to know. Teach them. And teach students to respect one another as people not sexual objects. And continue to join me every week. Send me your questions, topics, and requests to askdrberry.com, and I'll answer those questions and bring you experts to help address those topics. And if you are an expert who would like to come on and address the topic, give me a call. Don't worry about the things you cannot change. Change the things you can no longer accept. I'll see you next time. That's it for today's episode of the 3E Podcast head over to iTunes and subscribe to the show. 
one lucky listener every single week that posts a review on iTunes will win a chance in a grand prize drawing to win a $25,000 value private VIP day with Dr. Barry herself. Be sure to head over to 3epodcast.com and pick up a free copy of Dr. Barry's gift. Then join us on the next episode.